Welcome again to another in the series of Sound Talks Technology. I've got two stellar guests with me today. One you will know very well is Dr. Adam Watkins, who's been on the show before. And I'm joined today by Nick Dalton. Now, both Alan and Nick are the co-authors of a prescient and most wonderful book I was lucky to go to the launch recently of at the Icebox in London called Change the Workplace, Change the World. It's the HR revolution or evolution, however you want to say it. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you? Good evening, Sam. I'm extremely well. How are you, Nick? Evening, Sam. Yeah, great to be here. Now, Nick, let me introduce you. First of all, you are the EVP HR for Unilever, and you've been there for 33 years. I'm pretty sure everyone knows what Unilever does, but for those who are, have lived under a rock, what is Unilever? Yeah, so Unilever is often known by its brand names, uh, such as in the UK, Personal Automatic, uh, Dove Soap, Ward's Ice Cream. Unfortunately, not Lou Rolls, oh, no. But, okay. but soap, of course, if, if they invented soap now, it would, would considered to be a major medical breakthrough. So <laughs> we do do soap. And we do, do, and we do do cleaning products as well. So household cleaning products. So you're safe, you're stocked. Good. Dr. Alan Watkins, Alan, uh, welcome back to the show. Alan is, runs a, an amazing consultancy called Complete. Alan, what does Complete do, just for those who don't know? We work with a, a hundred different multinationals trying to help them up the quality of leadership and decisions that they make that affect all the people they serve. Brilliant. Now, obviously, given what's happening with COVID-19, change the workplace, change the world. The world is changing. It just happens to be changing. And and the work that we will do post working from home, self-isolation or, or social isolation, whichever way you want to call it, is going to change. But before we get into what's going to change and what will stay the same and what's going to happen in the future, which obviously if you read the book, there are things that will be in there that will tell you. Can you explain to me first and foremost how you came about to write the genesis of this book? Nick. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, Alan was, was actually working uh, with me as my coach for a couple of years. And, and these ideas began to emerge as we discussed various themes and my experiences and some of the challenges of leadership in the workplace today. And I'd had actually read Alan's original book, Coherence, and I was living in Switzerland at the time and I used to commute to work and I actually missed my stop on the way home because I got so absorbed in his book, Coherence. So when he suggested we write the book together, you can imagine I jumped at the chance. So it really arose from us having these discussions around leadership about the workplace and putting the world to rights together as we were doing my coaching. And uh, I, I recall from the launch that you said it was a very easy process of writing the book. Yes, I, I, I must admit, I, I, I was writing the book. We, we were writing it at weekends. I was writing bits on long distance plane journeys. And because I've been doing HR basically all my professional career, it was quite therapeutic because all the stuff I'd learned, I had a frame for and was able just to write down and it, it complemented perfectly Alan's expertise in terms of the leadership and adult developmental space and organisational space. So for me, it, it came very, very easy, I have to say. And it's not what I expected. I expected writing a book to be quite painful, but honestly, it was an absolute pleasure. Alan, this is your what? Fourth, fifth, sixth? Where are we in terms of books now? Eighth. Eighth, um, okay. I'll try and keep up. Uh, yeah. Uh, for me, it was an absolute delight. I mean, you know, Nick, Nick is a sort of HR genius in my, in my view. So experienced, so wise, uh, 
And I think Unilever benefits from that. And it was a real pleasure, you know, going back and forth. You know, Nick and I get on really well, apart from the fact that he supports the wrong football team. But we get on really well. And it was a real pleasure writing the book. And, and I learned a lot through unfolding the different waves, you know, how HR started and how the workplace has changed, you know, since the 1850s, right up to the present day. And, and we had a lot of fun, particularly in uh, sort of seeing the future of what's yet to come. Uh, and with COVID-19, some of the things that we predicted just a few weeks ago are actually happening now. So it was really fascinating and a really enjoyable journey for me too. So you've de defined past, present, future in waves. So let's try and break that down. What are the first few waves if, in summary? Because really the, the, the main waves that we want to talk about are the ones that are really t taking hold now. But, it, it, you know, so that people who want to buy the book, you know, what are the first few waves? What do you look at in those? Well, in the book, I mean, we, as Alan said, we start way back at the start of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and it is a history of HR, but it's not, a history of the type we know because the paternalist wave which was the first human response to managing big groups of people in factories and mills actually still see that in the world today it's why we call them waves but but the first thing we call hr started with paternalism the the human problem in the original mills and the original factories was how could you get people to turn up for work and, and not be drunk and be disciplined and the answer was a paternalistic approach for model villages. If you go to Port Sunlight, the, the, the village Lord Leverhulme built up in the Wirral, uh, those houses are beautiful today. Now, he built those at the end of the 19th uh, century, start of the 20th century, when Liverpool was a running slum just down the road. It's quite remarkable when you see the houses. Today. Being a Liverpool supporter, I will never knock Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was... The original response, the paternalistic response, you still see it in the world today. Uh, it's still a valid response. But after the Industrial Revolution met its first booms and busts, often a lot of the paternalists couldn't afford it anymore. And that's when you had the rise of the trade union movement. And you went into what we called the power era, where the sort of paternalistic leader was taken on by the powerful, charismatic trade union leader. And it often ended in violence. And we describe in the book some of the stories around that power era which are actually quite dramatic i have to say that was the chapter i enjoyed writing the best which possibly says something about <laughs> what i found interesting and dramatic and so then would it, that would sorry, a good example of that be scargill for example and the yeah, scargill was very much into the power approach to industrial relations as was yeah. uh, was margaret thatcher of course in response or as a result of uh, and in the book we talk about henry ford who practiced that and we talk about some of the people in the trade union movement who are now have songs about them. You know, the Bryant and Girl match, uh, match Girls, we talk about James Larkin, we talk about Sakran Vanzetti, we talk about all of these, these people. Because that era, because it was around power, was dramatic. The stories are, are really quite gripping. And we capture a few of them in the book uh, and, and talk to them. That era really, you can still see it today, by the way. There are still many, many companies, many, many trade unionists who practice that power mode of working. When I first started in industrial relations, that was the way of working I was taught. In fact, in many ways, Sam, it's the easiest thing because everyone knows their role and whoever has the most power wins. Uh, and everyone's actually in a, in a quite a safe space, even though it's dramatic and it's conflictual. The power era really was at its height after the First World War up until the Second World War. 
And after the Second World War, for not surprising reasons, and crisis, as we'll talk about in a minute, brings these changes quicker. After the Second World War, it was decided that these big charismatic power leaders weren't a particularly good idea anymore. And we went into the era... Decided by who? I think by society. It, it emerges. And I think, again, when we talk about what's happening today, you can see... I think it was Lenin who said, sometimes you have a decade in a week, and sometimes you have a week in a decade. And you see these changes, and they are when the waves change, when you have a decade in a week. And that obviously happened with the end of the Second World War. The Labour government came in, in the UK, with a landslide victory, completely unexpected in 1945. I mean, that's a revolution. And it just comes, and it happens, the decade in a week. It's happening now, we'll talk about that in a minute. But that led to the process wave where we decided rules, respect of fairness, having processes and procedures to manage conflict would have been rather a good idea. So HR people in those days were called personnel managers. I was when I was first employed. I was called a personnel manager. And it reflected that process era. In the 1980s, 1990s, my job title changed to HR manager. And at the time, I thought that reflected just a flashier job title that we brought in from the USA. But actually unbeknown to me at the time, it reflected another one of these waves because we went into the profit era. Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, we, we decided that the old process thing was too slow. In London, it was the rubbish on the street, the winter of discontent. The reaction to that, Callaghan said at the time in the 79 election that he knew there was one of these waves of change coming, that no matter what he did, and remember, in 1979, he was more popular than Margaret Thatcher was, yet she still won the election. She won yeah. the election because that wave of change came through. So one of the things I'm reading about is the history of Friedman again. And Friedman at the time was the economic guru who was influencing Pinochet, Reaganism, Thatcherism. And his view was the removal of any state control or involvement, friction in capitalism. In that period which Thatcher used very well. She got, she, she went against the miners, the power wave, as you called it, the Scargills. Did it, did it achieve its goal, its goal now that we can look back at it? Is it, is it the paternalistic wave that was the better wave or is it the Friedman wave that we have? You know, where, where, where did the two... They're waves. So we call right. them waves, Sam, on purpose. It's like when you're at the beach... Okay. All the waves meld into each other as they go up and down the beach. And there's no better way. There's a good way of doing things. There's a good, great way of doing paternalism. I'll look after you. I'm your father figure. Wouldn't we love that now if, if one of our leaders today could say, I'm going to look after you? They can't. But my God, wouldn't we love it if they did? The, the power wave is, I'll get it done. Follow me. If a ship is sinking, if you need something it's done. It's a Churchill quickly, thing. It is. It works. When it's gone, well, it works. And the process wave, which is there's some rules, we're going to obey them, they're fair, that works too. And in the same way, the profit wave, that had its upside. It, 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 it integrated process and power in a way that got us speed, but still did it in a way that talked to fairness. And in, in the workplace, we actually stopped being managers. We were managers in the process era, and we became transformational leaders. Many of my colleagues from multinational companies will recognize this. We went away on workshops to become transformational. We would talk about vision. Mission statements were born in the profit era. And the profit era brought things into society. It brought back a dose of individualism that was needed after 30 years of a largely a collective approach. 
So all of these ways build on each other. But as Alan, I guess, will be able to describe shortly, they all have a period of time when they regress and go into decline. And that's when we need the next wave to come along, which is in essence an integration of the best things that preceded it. Now, Alan, the last time you and I had the pleasure and chance to speak on a podcast, we were talking about your book, Crowdocracy, and we were talking about your Economics 2.0, Parliament 2.0. It felt that without me knowing this book, obviously, because it hadn't been published, that as Nick just described, we were reaching the end of the profit wave. And I was keen to find out what was going to happen next. Friedman, with his shareholder value, seemed like an anathema. It was like dead. It wasn't the right thing to drive us forward. And I wrongly said, you know, we need the Cadbury's, Bourneville type WH Smith, John Lewis models. Maybe that paternal model to come back where profit and shareholder value isn't the only thing. Now, are we there today? Has, has the fourth wave started or are we gone beyond it? I mean, because of what's happened, have we just crashed straight through into the next wave? Have we just missed this cycle altogether? Well, the fourth wave is the uh, profit wave, and so oh, it's, yes. has has the fifth wave started? Yes. Um, and these waves don't just apply to HR; they apply to society, which is why they, in the crowdocracy book, they you know how do these waves apply to politics and the political system? And so, just as Friedman was advocating a certain way of aligning executive or leaders' uh, remuneration to the ownership. That was a very profit-driven sort of manoeuvre, and the wheels have started to come off that in the same way as the wheels are clearly coming off the democratic process. And that's what I wrote about in Crowdocracy. That's also very clear. But the wheels have come off HR. So all of those waves, whether it's in society, in politics, or in HR, you know, a, lar- a, a large number of people are beginning to realise the wheels have come off. And maybe there's a different way. And we're seeing that in HR is, you know, the the name, the label HR has started to disintegrate. So you've now got not just, it used to be an HR director, the the most senior HR person in any global corporation was the HR director. And then it became the CHRO, you know, (laughs) the chief HR officer, you know, sort of aligned with the CEO and the CFO and everybody had to be a C something a chief of something. So it became CHRO, or actually as the the sort of next wave, the fifth wave, the people wave started to emerge, this became the CP, you know, not C3PO, it's not a kind of robotic person from Star Wars, although it does wonder when you meet some of them. But the CPO was the chief people officer, and wave five was the people wave. And one of the things that Nick was doing when he was describing the upside of all these waves, every one of these waves is not a better, worse deal. Every one of these waves has an upside and a downside. And what's really uh, comes through clearly in the book, and we try to bring this, is the downside. So when these waves go wrong and the wheels come off, that is a critical moment because that creates change. You know, it stops working, uh, and that's really the catalyst for evolution. It's when our lives go wrong that something new begins to emerge. Another adventure starts, if you will. And so giving this evolutionary perspective, you can see these tumultuous changes in society means things, something significant is happening. You know, this decade in a week that Nick talked about. And we're really 
moving in, not only in politics and society, but in HR for sure, into the people wave. Uh, and that's a very different wave. You know, there's a lot of talk in organizations of late about organizational purpose. And that's this people wave. Now, there's still a large amount of that uh, is really the profit wave leaders pretending to be people wave. You know, so one of the dark sides of the profit wave is, in addition to greed, which is obvious to many people, is manipulation. So we'll manipulate the next wave's agenda. We'll, you know, wolf in sheep's clothes. We'll pretend to be people leaders. We'll talk about organizational purpose. But really, it's marketing spin for, for commercial advantage. But there are some people who truly embrace that wave where purpose is legitimately true for the company and they truly do embrace it. So, you know, the bulk of HR practice, I don't know what Nick's closer to this than I, uh, would still be in the profit wave and before, but there's a significant minority who've entered the people wave today. So we're sort of on that cusp. The, the people wave is really the leading edge of HR practice, but the bulk of the HR community is still in HR rather than CPO, HR and profit wave and earlier. So my, one of my questions from the night that you did the book launch was purpose, you know, Simon Sinek's all over this with his find your why at the moment. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Charles Handy with his book, second curve talked about it as well. In, in terms of does purpose going to your point about sheep, uh, wolf and sheep's clothing get dismissed when we have profit challenges. So for companies, you know, struggling and failing, does purpose get thrown out the window because we have to survive? So is the, is the purpose wave, as you said, a nice marketing spin to create a brand advantage, but really we've got an underlining profit wave that's still running that will always be there? Well, well I would say that um, COVID-19 is a very interesting challenge happening globally because when we are in a tumultuous moment, and there's, it's absolutely clear that's where we are right now, is there's a varied response. Some people regress. So that's, as you were saying yourself earlier on, that there's a tendency, I want to go back, you know, and we harp back, oh, if only the paternalist leader could come in and save us and make us all feel better. So some people want to retreat. I mean, it's a natural human response to threat that we shrink. So we'll either fight flight or we'll play dead. And play dead in an organizational context looks like, you know, bunker mentality. Shut everything down. Stop everything. You know, no spends other than what's really urgent. And so you see some people, and, we, and I've encountered that literally in the last week, is, you know, many of our clients uh, close everything, stop everything, you know. So some will regress and try and kind of almost go into hibernation mode, bunker mentality mode. Some will just almost be rabbit in the headlights, oh, I don't know, you know, I'm in panic and I, I don't know what to do. I've got brain shut down. I don't know whether to go forwards or go backwards or just stay where I am. Or, But the best leaders, you know, realize that actually you've got to accelerate into the future. The only way out of this is to go forward. I, I mean, I think there's a Churchill quote, when you're going through hell, keep going. You know, don't stand still and don't go backwards. Yeah. Keep going. Uh, and so the best leaders will not just, oh, purpose is a nicety, you know, we'll just hunker down and focus on the cash. The best leaders will, you know, pay attention to the cash and the cash discipline. So one of the challenges that's happening in many businesses is, you know, if they're debt ridden, and many are, uh, and they don't have good reserves, and, and they're not been managing their cash flow tightly, they'll really struggle. And so the, the, the natural tendency is to abandon everything other than that. 
So they can't see longer than next week. But the real evolutionary challenge here is, can you have that financial discipline and not let go of the future and not abandon all the good stuff that has emerged, is emerging and will emerge? Or, you know, what are, who are you going to be as a leader? Are you going to stand still? Are you going to retreat? Or are you going to move forward? And that's the leadership challenge right now. So, Nick, um, being where you are with the challenges that COVID-19 has presented, what's Unilever doing today? Where, where Are you telling all your staff to work from home? Are you doing four-day weeks? Are you... Are you, are you embracing the the next wave and keeping the purpose going and going forward, or, or are you having to, you know, look at closing down hatches? How's the Unilever dealing with what's yeah. going on today? Yeah. So look, we are we are trying to respond in terms of facing into the actually in a paradox way, which is the way beyond. Because in Unilever, since two thousand and nine, we've been seeking to work from purpose because we believe the future of brands actually rests in them having a purpose that's beyond making a profit. We believe that brands with purpose are the ones that last and grow. And now we're faced with a situation whereby we, we have everybody working from home. But because we make household cleaners, because we make soap, because we make food, we're having to ask our factory workers in particular and some of our sales force, to continue working. Now you can imagine, people are scared. We're having to also continue to run our business in the sense of keep the dynamic of moving our business forward. We have reorganizations ongoing. I mean, Sam, many of your listeners will know or maybe don't know, last week we actually announced the closure of one of our factories in Warrington. And of course the people come to us this week and say, you know, we're scared. What are we going to do? And there's a couple of ways you could, you, could, you could respond to this in terms of HR and in terms of leadership. You could be very paternalistic and, and say, we'll look after you, but we don't know that we can. We're not that powerful. We could be like a power leader and say, just do as I tell you, please. We're in an emergency. But when you're asking people to come to work when they're scared of what's in the air and bring something home to their family, um, that don't work. We could be very technical with them and say, well, you come to work, we'll take your temperature, we'll, we'll squirt you with, you know, anti-back. Uh, that might reassure some because we're making sure they're safe, but it doesn't talk to the emotion. We can't use the techniques at all that we used in the profit era, which was all about company vision and a little bit spinning your workforce because they see through that now. And actually, I don't want to be political, but you can see the politicians working through the profit era mode now because they're just not authentic so what we've got to do now is really start to work with our people with our people um, around purpose and we're talking to our people and our people are telling us they're basically saying look we're making soap we're making food we all need that so you know we're going to do it and honestly it's moving you know and what we're learning and what the people era actually will will bring forth and, and help us in the paradox era is that we're learning now, we're learning this week as a society, that the people we called semi-skilled or unskilled, the people we, we low pay, the carers, the drivers, the people in the supermarkets, the nurses, these are the heroes of society. Mm. Our factory workers are the heroes of our company. And in the profit era, 
we just run restructurings after restructurings. You're not going to be able to do that now after this. Now that doesn't mean to say we're not, we can't, we've got to reorganize. We've got to reorganize. We, you know, we've got AI, we've got machine learning, we've got a whole different future of work. But the way we manage change now is to do it with our people, talking with our people and with empathy and in a people-centered way. That's what we're trying to do. But if I'm honest, it's really hard because most of us leaders were brought up in the profit era and we don't know how. And we're scared of it because we're expected to know the answers to the questions. And actually in the people era and in the, even more in the paradox era, leaders actually ask different questions. So we're learning how to do it as we're doing it. We're going to make mistakes as we do it, but we're going to face into that. We're going to face into that paradox as leaders that the way we lead now has to be very different from the way we led up until now because we've got to lead people into very different places and they've got to want to go there. So my, my, my question is, not just Unilever, because it's not about Unilever, but will companies now start to say profit maximization and shareholder value isn't the only goal and because the profit wave, but the market will determine that that's what you need. So how can we turn away from the market driver of shareholder value and share price and reinvent or reinvest profits. Now, Amazon does it well because it simply says, you know what? We're not paying dividends to the market. You can buy and sell our shares and that's all you get, but we're not going to give you dividends. Is that one step that all companies well, should start to look to? I think no, because look, Unilever, when Lord Lever set up Lever Brothers, he could do that too. When a company is new and it's growing and it's very powerful, you can do that. But that's not the reality for most companies in the world. I have a lot of respect for Amazon, but I think they're a profit wave company. And, and maybe that's the best place for them because they're growing like hell and they're, they're doing, they've really, really revolutionized the way we, we, we buy things. But I think, look, I think what's happening as we speak now means that shareholder value, if it wasn't dead after 2008, absolutely needs to be transcended now. Um, the airlines cannot survive. The hotel industry will not survive. The travel industry will not survive. Most of our small shops, even though they're not driven through shareholders, really need help. What we saw with the Chancellor of the Exchequer, what we saw with Macron in France, we are seeing, I studied economics, we are seeing economics of the type I never dreamed I would see in my lifetime. This is absolutely unprecedented and unbelievable. This changes our economic system. The companies that survive COVID-19 are the ones that can embrace the paradox, which Alan referred to earlier, and find new ways of working, new ways of connecting with consumers, new ways of connecting with their, with their customers, and most importantly, will be the companies that have been seen to serve society when society has needed it now. I'm convinced of that. Out okay. of this will come a new wave. We will crash into the paradox wave, I think. I think that will be the, that's the one thing at the moment in its darkest of days I'm holding on to because I think that will come of this and I think it will be positive. Can you explain, okay, for listeners, what is the paradox wave? So we've talked about the profit wave, the people wave, because if, if I'm right, the paradox wave is about bringing in disruption, AI, and 
um, robotics, which is not about people. It's less about people. It's about replacing people. So what is the paradox wave in its first sense? And is it the paradox yeah. that, how, how do you define it? I'll just say a brief thing, and then I'll ask Alan to comment on the leadership challenge of that, which I think is the heart of it. But I think you touched on it earlier, Sam, when you asked the question about shareholder value. So at the moment, Unilever would, I would say companies like Unilever and others have been in the purpose way probably now for five to 10 years. Purpose wave is great because diversity and inclusion becomes strategic because you've got to reflect your marketplace. Actually working and putting purpose into brands means you start addressing how your supply chain works in terms of making sure it's not too exploitative and you're going and adhering with human rights. You can't claim to be purposeful if you're abusing human rights in your supply chain. But the issue is to exactly the issue you faced. The, the, the reality up until three weeks ago was that you would reach problems with that because you would ask to trade off. How do you trade off your quarterly result? How do you trade off the issues around um, making things cheaper? How do you trade off the fact that you need to have more flexible workforce and you can't give them pensions, yet still be purposeful? Now, the paradox wave was when leaders started to say, this isn't the trade-off. What we've got to do is integrate and transcend. In other words, we've got to find a way of making sure that it is an and and that you can grow and you can protect the planet. And we make the breakthroughs in thinking that enable us to do that. That's the, the decade in a week. That's the, 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 you know, the wave crashing on the shore. Now, up until two or three weeks ago, I would have predicted it was still another 10 years away. But the 10 years have happened in a week. But the issue is, and Alan, I think we'll talk to this really uh, um, profoundly, we haven't yet, because we needed that 10 years to develop the leaders who could be ready for this wave. The thing is, it's come a little bit earlier than we expected. And the leadership development challenge is now absolutely fundamental for the future of society. And I don't know, Alan, maybe you could comment on that, because that's exactly what you do. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and that is why we do it, because we saw this brewing, that we were going to reach this week, we were going to meet a tumultuous moment, and, uh, you know, leaders will need to step forward in a profoundly different way. And even the nature of leadership development has, ha has to change profoundly, right? Because if you go on most business schools, you know, they, you know, send an executive, and we've seen a lot of this in the last 25 years, you know, people gone off to the, you know, the, the sort of business schools for 60,000, you know, for a three month program. Uh, and they basically come back the same person you know, more knowledgeable, they've had some experience, they've been taught a few skills, so they've acquired knowledge, skills and experience, so they've learned, but they're the same person, they haven't developed. And what is required now is actual development. You know, the, the emergency and the crisis is so great, we can't develop people in the same way. We've got to, it's a fundamental shift in the way that we develop people. So that itself is a paradox. Because in learning and development, uh, in my observation, it's been all L and no D. It's been all learning. The focus has been on learning, the acquisition of skills, knowledge, and experience. And we thought we were developing people, but we were actually just teaching them stuff. What we're talking about now is the human being changes, like paradigm shift, like fundamental dramatic shift in not what we know, but how we know these things. And it's that that is at the core of our the possibilities for us in the future. If we're going to come through successfully through this sort of emergency, we've got the emergency and the emergence happening at the same time. 
So in the paradox wave, you've got all these sort of confusing things. And certainly leaders below this wave are completely baffled because below this wave, you know, from sort of the, per the people wave and the profit wave and all of those waves, they operate with a mindset that, you know, you can't have these two conflicting things be true at the same time. That's not possible. You know, I, I can't be right. If I'm right, you've got to be wrong. You know, we can't both be right. But it turns out you can both be right. And that's what the paradox wave understands. And there's a, a, a couple of quotes that really lean into this. Even, uh, bless him, Charles Darwin himself said, when you get to these tumultuous moments, uh, it's not the strongest of the species that survive. So that was a misunderstanding, you know, the survival of the fittest. So even Darwin himself said, at, at these tumultuous moments, it's not the strongest of the species survive, nor the most intelligent that survives. It's the one that is most adaptive to change. And, and what he was pointing at was, you've got to have a paradigm shift. You've got to leap forward in a different way. And, and there's another, I like to quote with uh, many of our clients, this old Rumi poem, the Islamic Saint Rumi, who tells a story about four blind men examining an elephant. And one, you know, describes, you know, I've got a tusk. Uh, well, he doesn't say it's a tusk, he thinks it's a drain pipe. You know, I'm feeling a drain pipe, it's a drain pipe. I, and another blind man says, what are you talking about, drain pipe? It's a, it's a leather blanket. He's got the ear. You know, it's flat. It's rubbery. Another person says, leather blank, blanket, nonsense. You know, it's a rope. He's, it's fibrous. I can get my hand around it. It's, you know, he's got the tail, clearly. And another one says, you know, rope, what are you talking about? You know, it's a tree trunk. You know, I can't get my hand. It's a big, he's got the leg. And they're all saying completely contradictory things. And they're all correct. So in the paradox wave, leaders start to understand that it's possible to take two very different views and have them both be correct. And in the earlier waves, they just don't get that. And so the opportunity for us now is, you know, as Nick said, how do we, you know, um, grow the market and deliver profitability and deliver fairness and balance and people centricity? How do we do all these things which, which previous waves would see as pulling us apart would be contradictory but in the paradox ways, they, the contradiction disappears. It's because we see the elephant effectively. We can see a much bigger, much more. And that's why at the core of the future, the proper what's called vertical development is absolutely central. And there's one or two organizations in the States who are starting to embrace this. At the core of their strategy, they've become what, what we call DDOs, deliberately developmental organizations, i.e., this isn't just sort of looking after our people, you know, in that sort of, you see in the people wave, this is actually putting the phenomena of maturity and sophistication at the heart of the strategy. Because uh, I often do the thought experiment with clients saying, look, imagine as a neuroscientist, I can wave a magic wand and I can speed up your mind. I can make your mind go two or three times faster than it has ever done in your entire life. And imagine I could treble the quality of your thinking. I, if I develop you to that level of sophistication, don't you think that's going to be a game changer for you to build the future, even in turbulent times? And most people would say yes. So why aren't you thinking about that? And it's because they've been addicted to the profit wave largely, or they haven't matured through the people wave to get to this paradox wave. And it's the paradox wave that really is the only hope out of some of these increasingly turbulent times that we're, we're now seeing. Okay, so the, the paradox wave, you start off talking about disruption, and that's what we have. In this wave, well, prior to this book and, and prior to this paradox wave, you know, there was many people talking about 
When would we see a four-day working week? When would we start to see AI and automation start to replace some of the white-collar work, uh, let alone the blue-collar work? And that all seems to be happening. But will we see people just go back to the old way? Will we just suddenly see people go, you know what, I've got to catch a 710 back into London again now that it's okay. I've got to do my work the way I did my work before. Or do you think we will genuinely make a change? Because you said before we came on air, you know, the satellite imagery from China is showing that there's no smog over the majority of the country now. Uh, and, and that's good for the planet. But will we just go, oh, well, that was close. We're, we're through it. Let's just go back to the profit wave or purpose wave. Well, some, some will, like, like we said before, you know, some will stay where they are, sort of immobilized by fear and panic and not move forward or backwards and not know what to do. They won't be clear enough. Their you know, brain sort of shut down. Some, you know, will harp back to the old ways and just default. But the best of us will move forward. And, and the opportunity here is if enough of humanity wakes up to what's really going on and grows up, we all have a chance. And so, you know, again, another one of the characteristics of the paradox wave is we're on this knife edge. You know, salvation is equally possible as disaster. And that's part of the paradox wave. You know, we've got an unbelievable opportunity for triumph and disaster, you know, to sort of paraphrase Rudyard Kipling. That's the paradox wave. And so, you know, we all have to think, well, what's our personal contribution to that? And so my choice is... I've got to help people move forward. You know, you know, I've sort of everything I've ever read, you know, since I was doctoring, you know, 25 years ago and everything about my life, you know, is sort of almost coming to a head in these moments. We've got to help enough of us move forward because all of us depend on enough of us being able to move forward into the paradox and beyond. Now, Yuri Naval, just, sorry, Nick, go on. No, I was just going to echo because in the workplace, uh, we're seeing already... The, the fundamental change is happening. You know, we've got so many people now working from home. When you're working from home, the whole old-fashioned concept of the four-day week, actually, or five-day week, suddenly becomes a very different type of mm-hmm. frame. And I think that one, that, that, that's not going to go back to the old ways. You know, once we've now all got used to working in this different way, uh, it will start to take root. And as I said earlier, you now we're going to need heroes at the moment. And the heroes we're having are those who, in the past, we've said were semi-skilled or unskilled or low-paid. And those people in the next, I don't know how long it will be, but months are going to be society's heroes. We don't go back to treating them the way we were treating them before. We but that worries me, Nick, because we talk about, as a technologist, I talked about, you know, in the past, even before what's happened, going to a car park, paying with my phone, getting on a train, buying a ticket, no human contact, getting off at the other end looking at, you know, self-checkout at airports or, or mm. supermarkets. You know, the, the goal of what appeared to be corporate companies was to remove those heroes from, no, but, from the process. But I would, still, I would still do that. I would still use AI and machine learning as much as we could. But what we'll also see now, and, and what I think we could see even before, is there is no shortage of jobs that are people-centered. We have a terrible shortage in the UK of people who are carers. We have a shortage of people in the health service, and health sector. Mm. We actually found out now we've got a shortage of drivers. We knew that before. There will be no shortage of jobs. The issue has been that we've not valued those jobs. 
and we've not trained people for those jobs and we haven't prepared people and rewarded them appropriately. We will, after this wave, I'm convinced of it, we will now, because we'll have to. Right. Okay, so Yuri Naval's The Great Unwanted, where he talks about 80% of the world being unemployed and no longer needed, not even unemployed. You think we are going to value these people because we've seen their value today? I would even go beyond that, because I think that frame is too narrow. I, as I said before, I studied economics as a, as, a, as a student. and I was always a Keynesian, which is very much a process way piece, John Maynard Keynes. But actually, I don't think he was a process thinker. Because he wrote uh, literally 100 years ago, 1925, The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And he talked about when we would, technology and what he called uh, compound interest, would actually solve the economic problem. And that economic problem has been the basis for our politics since capitalism. And having solved the economic problem, because AI, machine learning, technology brings abundance. You know, these phones we all carry around have the whole world's knowledge on them. I mean, can you believe it? Uh, compared to when we were kids, it's unbelievable oh, yeah. what we can access now. That is abundance. That abundance, properly managed, can mean that all of us in life can have a right to realize our purpose. And that purpose could be caring for others. In a lot of cases, it will be. It could be learning and education. It could be the arts. It could be culture. There is no shortage of things for human beings to do. But we just need to organize ourselves appropriately to do them and use the abundance AI and machine learning allows us or provides to us to make sure that that's the direction we go in. And as I said before, I thought that maybe 10 years away if we were lucky, but I actually think it might be 10 months away now. Yeah, I think we've got to grasp the opportunity. I mean, one thing that Hong Kong announced the other day was that they're bringing in a form of UBI. Maybe it's short-term UBI, universal basic income, but they're giving everybody 1,200 Hong Kong dollars. We haven't done that here in the UK yet, and we haven't even done what France has done, which is guarantee no company will go under. I know we've put 330 billion. Can either of you see within this period of massive upheaval and change that we will actually say, right, because I, I know from my friends' companies, the two pubs in the village where I live have just closed. You know, they just can't stay open. They've let go of their short-term staff. Hopefully they'll be able to open again and bring them all back. But those staff now aren't COVID. They're not self-isolating. They're physically okay, but they've got no income and they were a gig economy worker. So, do you think UBI will come in or a form of UBI at this point? Yes, even Trump's thinking of it, isn't he? I think. Oh, okay. States. <laughs> as I understand it, reading yesterday, they were talking about cutting a check, as they say, over in the States of $1,000 for every US citizen. So I think some form of, of UBI it might manifest itself slightly differently. And I think actually the paradox will be that we might see UBI being delivered through a paternalism frame a process frame, a power frame, which is how I think President Trump will do it, uh, a, a profit frame and a people frame. And the best ones will do it through a paradox frame. But I think UBI will manifest itself in different ways, depending on the wave. I don't know, Alan, what your view is on that. I think it will come in, and uh, you know, depending on the value system of the person, you know, bringing in UBI, it will reflect that value system. So exactly as you describe, there'll be a, a power version of it, there'll be a profit version of it, a people version of it, and so on. 
I mean, I think it's very interesting to use the word, you know, changing the system. So as I see it, there's sort of waves, if we want to go with the theme of waves, there's waves of COVID-19. The first wave was, you know, a, a sort of health, if you like, the health impact, which was both immunological and psychological. You know, so we not only had the virus in, in the population, but the fear and the anxiety. that So that's sort of wave one of COVID. And wave two is if when the volume of people who are infected reaches a certain critical point, you get a, a health system overwhelm. You know, and this is what they saw in northern Italy. Right? They just didn't have enough ventilators because the primary difficulty, particularly with people with lung disease, was they get acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, or, or pneumonia, and you have to ventilate those people. Antibiotics doesn't work. It's a virus. So that's the sort of second wave of COVID-19. The third wave is the economic impact. And as Nick's just pointed out, that's already here. And the fourth wave, interestingly, is how every single system will change as a result of covid our economic system changes. You know, we may get multiple versions of UBI. The way that we think about working changes, four-day weeks, you know, working from home. So, you know, how do you do that in a four-day week? You know, patterns of work change. So the workplace changes. You know, we're trying to encourage uh, clients to accelerate towards the virtual world because it will be the future. So embrace it. Don't shut everything down and go into bunker mentality move forward and move forward at speed so and of course the, the the fifth wave of covid will be all the unintended consequences that we didn't see as we were going through this sort of terrible crisis and there will be lots of those so you know there there are sort of waves that will hit every nation on work on earth as a result of the covid virus but there's no doubt it will fundamentally change pretty much every system and that change in some circumstances will be unhelpful you know a regression that change might be stasis back to the 710 into London type thing. But hopefully, as I said before, enough of that change will be positive. We'll seize the opportunity. And that's why, you know, Nick was talking about the, the heroes, the carers of society and the people who were the unwanted, as, as you just described, Sam. Well, I'd say not me, Urinaval, before Urinaval. I get labelled with that one, okay. just to make sure well, it wasn't me. So the, the unwanted, as Yuri would say, and, you know, it, so those people will be much more valued, but it, they're, not, they're not the only heroes, and that's interesting, the paradox, the only heroes aren't those people, are the people, the leaders are also, in a way, heroes, and the leaders who can lead us to the future and not advocate regression. Those are also kind of a, a sort of form of hero, if you will because we're going to need that. We're going to need to change the way we see each other. You know, we're going to need to value some of those carers and those types of roles, those drivers and so on. But also we're going to need leaders to step up to the plate and themselves develop, move up to a, a whole new level and, and think about themselves and their task and their organization. They're also the heroes, I think, that we're going to need. And so you're paradoxically, you, heroes almost what would, would have been considered, you know, the bottom of the pyramid, those heroes and heroes at the top of the And there's the paradox. You know, the way that we think about heroism and the way that we think about leadership, paradoxically, will be very different too. That's the paradox wave. Uh, are there any companies or people that you know of prior to this who you would put up and say, they're probably going to be the heroes that I would expect to come forward? people that you may have recognized in the past from their leadership skills? Well, uh, I mean, I think it will emerge. So I don't want to 
you know, put the sort of rosette on any particular company because then that will kick off another whole debate. But, you know, there is an opportunity in every company to be that hero, you know, because and it, if there's the maturity of individuals within the system, any leader in their system, in any company, even if they were stuck in the profit wave, you know, basically just trying to maximize quarterly returns, now have the opportunity to step forward in a new way. You know, this is I, um, I use an example when I talk about this at work and people ask that exact same question, uh, Sam. I actually tell everyone to watch the film Invictus, which is the film uh, starring Matt Damon, of all people, about the South African rugby team's World Cup triumph. Mm. And my term is the Nelson Mandela's of the business world. And, you know, if you're watching Invictus, Invictus is a brilliant film about paradox leadership. That's actually what the film's about mm. and how Mandela embraced the paradoxes. And, uh, you know, there's Mandela imprisoned for over 25 years, embracing the South African rugby team, which was the symbol, the springboks of apartheid. How can you get more of a paradox? Yeah. And yet what he did in creating the Rainbow Nation was so inspiring. That's what we need today at all levels of society. That can't be one's offs anymore. We've got to get more and more Nelson Mandela's. Exactly. Well, let's hope we get them. I've got a, a high hope for in New Zealand and maybe Macron's moment to step up. You never know. Wave seven, then, is the planet wave. What is the planet wave, gentlemen? Well, one of the issues of the planet wave is we, we really don't know because it's yet to emerge. But the, the things we think it will talk to Will be, it will address the paradox of growth and sustainability. We think it will be a system of organization, of, of, of managing things, where actually the heart of what we do is sustainability and coherence of our planet. And we, we explore, I think, Alan, it's fair to say, no more than explore what we think might be some of the things emerging at that time. And I think when we wrote the book, we thought it was quite a long time away. Maybe it's actually going to be closer than we thought. But it is around, actually, abundance and the opportunities abundance give us to really, really bring purpose meaningfully alive for human beings. Maybe you can, you can give a more coherent answer, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think enough leaders have to enter into the paradox wave for us to get crisp enough definition on the planet wave. So very much in the, you know, when I talked about system change that you see in the paradox wave is every system changes and it needs to change because we're in a whole new world now. So as that stabilizes, then it ceases to be about the system itself. It starts to become about the balance and harmony of that system. And one of the things I, I like to do is to challenge a room, largely, you know, current leaders in, in most corporations about where do you think the best economy is in the world? And then you get, you can imagine you get every answer under the sun, you know, people shouting out the name of their own nation state and so on. And I go, no, 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 that's not. And then people look baffled. I said, the best economy in the world is the human body. The human body is a really beautiful metaphor, right? That the, no part of that system tries to dominate any other part of the system. You know, the liver doesn't try and have it over on the kidneys. The kidneys doesn't try and dominate the lung. So it's a beautiful economy. Everybody has their place in that system. 
there's balance and harmony in the system uh, and it produces uh, an individual human being can produce wonderful art you know wonderful music you know and wonderful societies ultimately so if we take the metaphor of the human body that's kind of like you know the planet in the body you know so if if we can get this right if we can come through the paradox wave successfully then the agenda shifts to a, being about you know everybody it transcends and includes everybody's welcome everybody's got a role everybody's valued and people start to realize the childishness and the ultimate failure of somebody trying to get one over on on another and we've put in the rearview mirror that this frankly obscene thing where eight people on the planet has has as much wealth as 50 percent of the planet that's way in the rearview mirror is we you know and history will come to see that oh my god what were we thinking i mean i watched recently the a documentary on you know the 1970s miss world seismic shift in the way that we even perceived you know a beauty yeah. Uh, and the sort of the, the women's lib movement who sort of uh, disrupted that, you know, where ironically was the first black winner of Miss World. And we look back and watch those and they're almost unwatchable. So the stuff that we look back, you know, just a few years ago, just 50 years ago, we think, oh, my God, that's embarrassing. And I think we'll do the same. So when we get to the planet wave, it will be fundamentally different again. You know, uh, enough people will start to realize that beauty and human evolution and growth and self-actualization to use a maslow word really depends on this sort of beautiful economy the economy and the metaphor is the human body so i think that's what the planet the balance and harmony of all species the balance and harmony of, of husband and wife and father and daughter and operating in and we've got a long way humanity's got a long way to go to that i mean you know, we, we can barely get on with each other on a one-to-one -one basis most of the time, you know. Yeah, we divorce certainly... rates are going to go up through self-isolation, that's what's <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So when we get to that wave, it will be an even more dramatic change. And hopefully, you know, mankind gets to experience themselves as they, you know, were meant to experience themselves. You know, there's a beautiful flourish. You know, it's the full bloom that we can see. And as Nick said, you know, when we wrote the book, we, we sort of said, well, probably won't start to kick in on any significant level and volume into about 2030. But given the last three weeks, you know, maybe that's come forward 10 years. Well, you, you thought the, the planet wave could be as early as 2030. Wow. OK. Well, a bit of it, the, say... the cutting edge, right? So okay. the, lead, the, the leading edge, yeah. the, okay. the start of it would be 2030. But it wouldn't, you know, I mean, it, that was where it's are. But maybe, you know, it will start to emerge a bit sooner, as Nick suggests. So, given having written the book now, um, is, is the book, in your opinion, because it is prescient, as I said at the beginning, of what's occurring because of the externality of COVID creating this acceleration, did you, do you now look back at the book and say, yeah, we're pretty accurate, actually, because you can now see several of your future waves actually occurring in real time now? Do you, do you feel that you were right or is there anything you would say now? Well, as, as an editorial, would you say, maybe we could change that in, in hindsight, yeah. in a revision? It's funny because we, we finished the book actually at the end of 2018. Right. And it took, it took until the end of 2019 to finally get into public publication. And I said to Alan, I think somewhere in the middle of 2018, I think we're already out of date before it even got published. <laughs> so, I, I, but, but what I'm conscious of is, is 
you know, what I wouldn't say what we've got in the book is right. Actually, I'd say almost certainly it's wrong. Okay. Because uh, the issues, because we, we, we can't be right. That's part of the, the, the paradox thinking. <laughs> what, what we're trying to do, what we try to do is hold up a lens just to think about things and ask questions in a different way. And I'm always really, really um, careful. When I speak in, in Unilever, and you'd have heard me, Sam, at the book launch, I always use this quote, which I would like to share with the podcast, which actually just sums up, actually, as we now go in and try and practice some of these practices, the fact that we don't really know what, yet, what we'll, we don't have the right answers. And if I may, uh, you might want to edit it out after, but I love this quote. because Go for it. For me, it captures really how we've got to lead now, the leaps we've got to make, particularly now as HR practitioners, when we've got to address the issues of a fearful workforce, completely different ways of working, uh, completely different economic realities. And I come from an Irish background, and uh, I always say when I was young, I went to my grandparents' house or, or their friend's house, there was always three pictures on the wall. There was, on one hand, over the fire, there was a picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. On another, there was the Pope. And on the other wall, there was John F. Kennedy. He was the first Catholic president, Irish president of the United States. And the day before he died, which I think makes it really meaningful, the day before he died, he made a speech in, in Texas to the Aero, Aerospace Medical Unit, talking about putting a man on the moon. And I'd just like to quote a couple of lines. Can I quote a couple of lines? Absolutely, please. Think, yeah. I think it captures our challenge now. It captures the, 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 the challenge of the book and it captures the type of leadership we've got to be. He, t he talks about Frank O'Connor, the Irish writer. And he says, he tells in one of his books how as a boy, he and his friends would make their way across the countryside. And when they came to an orchard wall that seemed too high and too doubtful to try and too difficult to permit their voyage to continue, they took off their hats and tossed them over the wall and then they had no choice but to follow them. And for me, that's where we are today. And for me, that's the challenge for HR today, the challenge for leaders today. The hats are over the wall now. They've been thrown over by COVID-19 and we've got to follow them. I think that's a fitting point to end. Nick Dalton, Dr. Alan Watkins, as ever, always fascinating. I highly recommend everyone go out and buy the book, Change the Workplace, Change the World. If what we're going through with COVID-19 is anything to understand. This book will help you make a framework to understand it, at least take you through the next few years, if not into the next decade. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. It's been thank a pleasure. You. Your pleasure.